Acoustic Alternatives from Grove Studios in Ypsilanti, the host of the podcast since, what was that, October of 2020 when they invited me to kind of get my podcast on, even though I said, oh, come on, do we need another music podcast? And they said, oh, please, just come, check out our place. And I have, and it's a really great place if you're a local musician or uh, even a DJ, they've got rooms for you to practice so you don't have to annoy your neighbors. Their motto is get out of the garage and get into the studio, (laughs) and it's a cool place to be. I should show Will around. We were just uh, settling in and chatting while we were uh, setting up the microphones. But hey, if you're ever coming to town with your band, you're like, I need to practice before the gig. This is the place, Will. It is really cool. Yeah. So this is Will Kimbrough. He's a, an artist that has been on my radar for many, many years. And this coming podcast, which uh, those of you who are regular followers of it, you know, my focus is to kind of expose people to the, you know, the, the other side of the music industry, the singer songwriters, the people that are creating art more or less behind the scenes and sometimes in front of people. Uh, not a ton of them are household names, unfortunately. I don't know that Will, I don't think you're a household name, but well, God, your resume is impressive. Um, my wife would say I'm sort of famous in some towns. Yeah, I mean that's true. That's exactly right. You got your, your rock side, your stripped down folk side, your Americana side. There's a country side. You're an in demand guitar player, producer, songwriter, and I think an author as well. We had an email conversation. Working on it. Yeah. Working on a book. So we'll yeah. get into that. Um, let's get into your history after you play a song of your choice. Yeah. So I gonna play. I think I'm going to play a song. It's the title track to a record I put out in 2019. And I will uh, say that I've got a new record coming out in May of this year called For the Life of Me. And it's been a long time coming. Um, I put a record out in 2020. And that was, uh, it was almost easier to put a record out in 2020 because I didn't have anything else to do <laughs> except for my work with songwriting with soldiers and, um, and live streaming from my porch. Um, but uh, I'll do this one. It's just a favorite of mine. And uh, I wrote this sitting in my car on the way to a gig down in lower Alabama, L.A. And um, I just wrote the lyrics in my head. So I pulled over and talked them into my phone, and I knew how it was going to go. So then I played it that day at the show at this place called the Frog Pond at Blue Moon Farm, which is kind of a home away from home gig for me and uh in a gig that almost i could say saved my life or saved my soul during my dad's uh journey with uh dementia which was about a five or six year um time and so i was down down there all the time making that drive and uh this is one that, that i wrote that i like it down here She asked me, when does the bad luck stop? When do we rise to the top? It's awful hard work pulling up the rear. She said, now, honey, don't you want to be a big success? You can buy me a diamond and a wedding dress. I leaned in close and I whispered in her ear. Said I like it down here with the hobos and the drunks I like the hard-bitten rabble with the leaving trunks Blood in my mud and sawdust in my beer I like a wake-up call at half past one And if I had a job I would get her done I can catch real fine trash fish off the pier like it down here Well she rolled her eyes And she bit her lip She let her skinny backbone slip Let her chest feel 
church keyed another beer She smiled and she said I must admit that I always did like a man with grip And then she slapped my face and called out with a sneer She said I like it down here boss just as much as you I like the builds water and the bus tub stew I got a three-legged dog and a one-eyed buccaneer I like my homemade wine from a scup of nong I like smoking guns, I love drinking songs I got a big steam train with a drunken engineer I like it down here And the whiskey priest I like the bat chain pullers And the shiny beasts I got a street life lover With a tattoo of a tear I want a woman with a face Like a question mark You know she cleans up good When it's nice and dark In a railroad flat With a monkey called Belvedere Come over here Belvedere I like it down down here Sounding great on the podcast today. Will Kimbrough on Acoustic Alternatives and a track uh, going back just a few years. And actually a great way to go back in your history because down here from where we are in Michigan, not too far from where that guitar was built, right? Um, down here is where you grew up, Alabama, right? That's right. Tell me about uh, growing up in Mobile. Mobile. Yeah, I'm from Mobile, and uh, Mobile, Alabama, is uh, a, a port city on 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 the bay that uh, is. There's a huge river delta uh, that the biologist E.O. Wilson, who grew up there in the delta, calls it America's Amazon. So it's an hmm. incredible water 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 world, you know, wetland. Then empties out into Mobile Bay, which empties out into the Gulf of Mexico. So there's rivers and the bay and the Gulf. So it's a watery place. Mosquitoes. It's very humid <laughs> and hot. It's very jungly, subtropical. You know, hurricanes, humidity. Um, beautiful place. Great musicians there, um, and uh, great culture there. Great food. And I grew up in a house full of books, and um, and with parents who, uh, you know. Uh, encouraged me to learn how to play music. I don't think they could know how uh, deeply it was going to affect me and how how much I was going to form a band at age twelve and start playing shows. Twelve, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I mean, that was my I I got an instrument in order to be in a band. I wanted to be in a band. Mm-hmm. And ironically, now I travel around a lot by myself and play solo. But uh, part of that is the uh, the economics of touring. Yeah. And um, and also the freedom to play songs uh, that you maybe just wrote, and and also just adult life. You know, being in a band is like being in, uh, you know, a 
multi-spouse marriage, <laughs> although I don't know anything to compare that to. But, but uh, well, that's going to be Utah, I guess. Then when you do meet your meet your life partner, yep. if you're lucky enough to do so, I did back in the early 90s, and we're still together, um, there's less space in your life for... You can the Beatles eight days a week movie. Ringo says it. He goes, "We all got married. We all got houses. We all had babies. We didn't. We the band wasn't everything to us." And that's the Beatles. So you know, they why, did okay for themselves. Why would my band be more important to me than the Beatles were to Ringo? So right. So yeah, it starts to become less important to be in the band. So that was thirty years ago when I was in the Biscuits, and that was my, you know, full time band at that time. And I got married, and all of a sudden I was like, "This isn't as important to me. I want to." I still want to do music, but I want to have my family. Well, what happened before 12? What were you doing like as a kid that wasn't music? Was there any like possible other path for you ever? I will say this, and people always chuckle at this because it really does sound like Forrest Gump. But from age three to six, I, I, was, I walked on crutches. I had this condition called leg calf perthes. Well, they just called it back then leg perthes, where your, your hip bone on my right side, my hip bone, um, it's, it's experiences necrosis, right? So the bone is not getting enough blood and mm. it's dying. And so what the, the treatment back then, and probably still to this day, cause a three year old, you can't do a hip replacement on a growing child. So they just keep you off the leg. So they put your leg in a little sling, you hitch it up every day and walk on your crutches. So my parents had to watch me cause I was three, four, five, six years old. I'm not supposed to be running around on my leg because you right. go to the orthopedic clinic and there's somebody with a leg much shorter than the other because they didn't stay off their leg. And so, and then I became a track star. <laughs> what? So when I was 12, I was in 13, I was 11 to 13, I was like nationally, and actually all the way through to about 15, I was like a nationally ranked 400 meter and 800 really? meter runner. But the, the saving grace for my musical career was that I... I tore my hamstring when I was 15, and it took long enough to heal. And then I hurt hurt my Achilles tendon after that. And so I started a band with an older guy who was in his 20s, and we started writing songs. And so that was it was over for me. You know, I wasn't going to run track. I wasn't going to go go to college, and um, I was going to do music. So I kind of broke my parents' heart, but I went ahead and did it up front. You know, like. I'm not, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take that path. And then, right when I decided maybe I should go back to college, that's when I moved to Nashville. So I just had to make that decision. Yeah. Go back to school or move to Nashville. And Nashville was calling. 1988. 87, really. Um, what Steve Earle, the great songwriter Steve Earle, calls the great credibility scare, was <laughs> happening in Nashville. And, and, and what that was, was that you had a major label, particularly MCA Records, had signed Steve Earle. Lyle Lovett. Lyle Lovett, Nancy Griffith, Kelly Willis, a guy named, uh, anyway, a bunch of people. And then you had mainstream country singers like Clint Black and Randy Travis. And then also over on RCA, you had Foster and Lloyd, which was Radney Foster and Bill Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And Bill Lloyd was a guy making indie pop records, like jangly pop, REM, Love Tractor kind of records. And he had they had a number one hit when I moved to Nashville. Like literally, when I moved to Nashville, 
Foster and Lloyd had a song that could have been a Niccolo song or an Elvis Costello song or Los Lobos, a cool song, was yeah. number one on the country charts. And so Jason and the Scorchers were still around. The yeah. Georgia Satellites were happening. Webb Wilder was still was already happening. So all these great kind of American roots guitar bands were just thriving in Nashville. So it was a no-brainer, really, because that scene was literally all coming to my, our shows and saying, why aren't you moving here? <laughs> and so my alternative was to go back to college or go be where John Hyatt was and Steve Winwood and Rodney Crowell and Emmy Lou and Steve Earle and John Prine and David Olney and on and on and on. You know, you could just go on, right? Yeah. And that scene was welcome, had its arms open to me. So I went to Nashville in January of 88. And um, my band at that time, Will and the Bushman, got signed to an EMI label. Within a, it looks like this, right? So yeah. For the camera, this is the this is my starting point. Yeah. So we we got signed to a developmental deal, which at the time in the music business, I don't want to bore people to tears, but I'll say this: <laughs> in the music business at that time, there was no cross collateralization between Nashville and L.A. or New York or London. There was just country music separate in a pod over here with walls around it. Pop music over here, and pop music included everything: metal, rap, sure, pop, you know. Yeah. And then every country was over here, and uh, so they were walled off from each other in a bit corporate sense, and uh, and it didn't make any sense to us because we moved to Nashville because we knew Foster and Lloyd, and we knew and we met John Hyatt, and we loved, you know, all these Webb Wilder, and it all seemed to be the same thing to us. But yet, in the, when it filtered out into the world through the business, it was separated out. Mm-hmm. So I think at that point I started to understand that um, I wasn't going to fit in that particular structure. Also because the business told me that our band had to have one singer and we had to concentrate on one style, and that wasn't really our thing. We it, had three singers. It didn't happen on the next record for sure. Right. And so we, um, we, we tried to figure out how to thread the needle. And we went to Bearsville and made a record, the record you held up. Um, this, well, one, this one preceded it, though, did it not? The, yeah, we made that record. Independently? Yeah, we made most of that record in um, in Slidell, Louisiana, which is right across Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. And a friend that lived there for a while. And a guy named David Farrell engineered it. He's still working. He's. Um, we were lucky to have him. Uh, he... He ended up working with Elvis Costello and the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, and you know he's one of the great engineers of the modern time in New Orleans. And uh, and then we recorded some of it, and just it was all indie. But uh, so the Bushmen made a record, and we toured as much as we could. And, and in our minds, we were doing the right thing. And the label was kind of like, why are they still touring? They they don't their songs not on the radio. So it was you know it was a corporate rock era, and so. Um, we made a, another record that they didn't put out. It was a long... That one? That one. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> and so we made that record, and the label didn't put it out, and it took us a year and a half to get it get it released on a label. And in my mind, it's about being in your 20s and time, a year and a half, when you've been, you've been plowing forward and things have been happening for you, like clockwork, and all of a sudden there's this roadblock where they we own the master, we're not releasing it. Well, can we get permission to re- to find another home for it? We'll let you know. And the legal department at Capital and EMI wouldn't talk to our manager, 
So we were just stuck for almost two years. Finally got it placed. By that point, the band was, I guess our spirit was was broken. It's not it's not the, a terrible story. We didn't really get ripped off. We just were in the music business. Yeah. It's not a abnormal story. Spit you up and chew you out a little bit. It's more the tra- the actual average story of what happens to people. The, the outliers are the people that, you know, well, for five years I was stuck in this deal, but then it came out and I became, you know, the famous person you know. <laughs> but uh, so I came out of that. It, meanwhile, at the tail end of that, I met Tommy Womack, uh, Grimy, who owns Grimy's Records, and the Basement East, and the Basement in Nashville. He's become a pillar of Nashville's music scene. And uh, Tommy Meyer, and we formed a band called The Biscuits, and we signed with John Prine's label, Oh Boy Records. Mm-hmm. And ironically, right around the same time, I met Todd Snyder. The same day Todd signed with Jimmy Buffett's label, Margaritaville Records slash MCA, we signed with John Prine's label, Oh Boy Records. Hmm. And we met in a coat closet at like an ASCAP party because <laughs> we were trying to get out of there. We yeah. had our free free beers and we wanted to leave, so yep. we were looking for our coats. And uh, so the the and uh, as we were talking about earlier, the the band being like a marriage, I got married to my wife and I became unmoored from the marriage of the band and so I quit the band I didn't want to be in in band like that full-time anymore I wanted to just have my family do what I wanted as a musician as an artist so I started writing songs trying to figure out how to be a solo artist Todd Snyder calls me (laughs) and his first album songs for the Daily Planet is coming out this is late 94 and so I say, why not? I don't have anything else going on. I'll go out with Todd. This is a great record. I can play this kind of... The guitar player on the record was primarily Eddie Shaver, the late, great Eddie Shaver, Billy Joe Shaver's son, mm-hmm. and Doug Lancio, who's now out with Bob Dylan. So it was great guitar playing on the record, people that I knew. So I learned the parts, went on the tour. Todd and I had great chemistry. We toured for years. We made records. We wrote songs. I met Jimmy Buffett. Just pivotal stuff is happening. Uh, I meet Jimmy Buffett at a Todd Snyder show at Tipitina's in New Orleans. Jerry Jeff Walker and Jimmy Buffett showed up at our show and sat in with us. And backstage at Tipitina's is about the same size as this studio room, hmm. which for the listener, it's not very big. It's a bedroom. For the watcher, you can see. It's like a bedroom. Uh, what, eight by eight by 12, something. Yeah. So. There's about 200 people in a room this size trying to have the party of the year with Jimmy Buffett and Jerry Jeff Walker and Todd Snyder, and everybody's just trying to get out of there because there's nothing. It's not. It's not going to happen. The party's not going to happen. I'm standing right. In, I'm shoulder to shoulder with Jimmy Buffett, pressed up against the wall, and so I say, "Hey, Jimmy, I'm Will. I'm from Mobile," and he said, "Oh, you're another escapee." And gave me that big room lightning smile. And I laughed and said, yeah, I guess so, yeah. And so then I I was sort of, Todd lost his deal with MCA, and the band was sent home. There was no more tour support to take the band out in the bus. And he became the folk singer that he, he became again the folk singer he started as. And, you know, everybody knows Todd as the the solo folk singer, occasionally with hardworking Americans, but primarily it's the barefoot guy on stage telling the stories. Right. And so, uh, which has been great. And uh, I got to work with him on some great records. But I went home and sort of tried to figure it out. By the time I had a, a, we had a a daughter and another one on the way, I'm working with whoever calls. Lucky for me, my friend Seamus, who was our 
front of house sound man with Todd Snyder had started working for Rodney Crowell. And Stuart Smith, Rodney Crowell's long, long time guitarist, <laughs> got the Eagles gig. Poor guy. And so Stuart's like, well, I'm, I'm in my 50s. I've got this gig. This is going to be my retirement. It's going to, you know, this is going to be the rest of my life, hopefully. And um, so he goes off and does that. Rodney's like, I've been working with Stuart for 15 years. Who am I supposed to call? I don't even know. I haven't even thought about it. So Seamus said, you might try, try my buddy Will. He might be all right for you. So Rodney calls me, comes over to my house. I've got Rodney Crowell sitting right in my face saying, do you know this one? And he's like, you know, till I gain control again and, you know, on and on. Um, I ain't living long like this, you know, playing all these songs that I know and that I love. And, and, uh, and he says, well, I guess you'll do. And um, <laughs> I'll, I'll see, you, see you at the airport. What an endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you'll do. That's a good one from him, though. Yeah. Um, um, King of the understatement. So we worked together for seven years. So I actually toured with Rodney longer than I did with Todd. Hmm. And we made some records. Never did really write with Rodney. I, I regret that. Maybe we I can remedy that in the future. But uh, and then through that time, I met. That's how I met Amy Lou. But in 2003, I got contacted by Jimmy Buffett. So we're talking five or six, seven years after I met him. He asked about me. He asked his his niece <laughs> about me. His niece is a friend of mine, and, and she, he said, what happened to that guy from Mobile? And she's like, what guy from Mobile? Hank <laughs> there's Aaron? A, there's a you, lot of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hank, Hank Aaron, what are you talking about? So Willie McCovey, um, yeah. a lot of baseball players from Mobile. But uh, he said, that guy that played with Todd. And so she said, well, he's in Nashville. So, so she called me and said, here's my uncle's address in the Hamptons. Send him some music because you're on his mind. And so I sent him everything I had, which at that time was two, my first two solo records and um, a record called This and a record called Home Away. And then I sent him... This was in my hands? <laughs> <laughs> and then I sent him like a CDR of home recordings and demos. And I didn't hear anything for about three months. And then I heard from the Jimmy Buffett office, wherever it is, Key West, Florida, you know. Sure. The, from the beach at Key West... Um, I got the call. Jimmy wants to cut these two songs. I said, great. I uh, didn't hear anything for another three months or so. And then I got another call. Uh, Jimmy wants you to come play on the album. Can you be in Key West in January 2004? And I said, yes. And so a, a new part of my life started. And we made a record called License to Chill. And this is the tail end of the time when you would a new record would come out by your favorite artist and you'd tr trot down to Target and buy a CD. Yeah. So the, the, the record sold a million and a half copies. It sold a quarter of a million in the first week, which doesn't even happen now for no. Taylor Swift or right. Jay-Z or whatever. So, or maybe Ed Sheeran. I don't know. But um, who are these kids? What are they thinking? Um, so life is really good. But, you know, with something like that and your, your own publisher, I didn't have a publishing deal. So you don't get paid for like a year. So I just continued doing what I was doing. You know, I was making my indie records and playing with Rodney and playing sessions. I produced a couple of Todd Snyder records during that time, um, just doing what I was what I was doing. And then a year later, I got a I got a, a, the biggest check I ever got to this day, actually. And I, and and it, but it wasn't it did you know it didn't it didn't make us rich, but it was a it was like a a year's worth of money in one check life affirming in its own little very life affirming and so uh, 
And so I kept in touch with Jimmy Buffett. That was kind of my lifeline to the big time. I'm sorry for your loss, but I didn't <laughs> thank know him, you. So I, yeah, thank you. It was and so so we we did that work for 20 years. Um, meanwhile, Emmy Lou called me at some point during that time and asked me to play guitar for her, and I said yes. And then she called me back the next day and said, "I didn't realize you were still playing with Rodney. I'm not going to steal my friend's guitar player." <laughs> and so um, so. I had to wait until 2011 for her to call again, and I got called for a uh, an audition, and there were five other guitarists, and I auditioned. And I think what got me the gig was mainly that I can play guitar well enough, but there were better like country pickers than me there, like super guitar players. Yeah. But I knew that the best of those super guitar players, there were three of them who are self-proclaimed non-singers. Ah. And I thought... They're not going to get the gig because she needs background vocals. She just everybody sings in her band. Yeah, and and I just thought, well, good luck, guys. But I'm going to go in there and sing. And I remember we rehearsed. We not rehearsed. We played all the six songs they told me to learn, which were a couple of songs from her new album, a couple of songs from like Wrecking Ball era, and then a couple of classic luxury liner, fast country kind of songs. Sure. And then after that, she hit me with a surprise, which which I had not been told to prepare for. She said, well, let's ha- see how you do a duet. And she goes, let's do Love Hurts. Oh. So, I mean, I know the version of Love Hurts from the Graham Parsons record. So I just said, and she put her guitar down. So it's just me and an electric guitar. And nobody else is playing, standing in the middle of a rehearsal f- facility. And she goes, you take the first verse and then switch to harmony. And so I did the best I could. So I think she was just looking for somebody that would go, okay, I'll try it, you know. And she and so we started and kind of it fizzled out. And she goes, okay, that's cool, thank you. And but everybody in the band except for one person was like a, a best friend of mine. So when I walked in the room, everybody got up and gave me a hug and laughed. We were laughing and smiling. And I think I could just see in her face she was like, this guy will get along on the road. Yeah. The most important thing. Yeah. Because you can train a raisin to play the guitar. <laughs> A raisin. <laughs> That's a stretch, but okay. Yeah, but <laughs> they don't have arms. I'm talking about the California raisins. I was going to say, wait a minute, the California raisins, yes. But anyway, so that's, I mean, and so at that point, it's 2011, and and from then until now, uh, my father had dementia for five or six years. That was quite a journey, and that time I formed a band called Willie Sugar Caps, and it turned out to be a lifeline for me to be able to go down to my home in Mobile as many, as often as I needed and be able to work because we had a band down there. We'd play Jazz Fest, all the festivals on the coast. We'd play that place I mentioned called the Frog Pond. And that's not the only thing. It was an amazing time. It was the chemistry between the people in that band was kind of staggering to have that kind of chemistry in a band after all those years of go back to the early 90s I'm not going to be in a full time band anymore I don't have room in my life for it to a bunch of adults where we could just show up together rehearse backstage work up harmonies and go out there and play a show and nobody ever questioned do you guys ever rehearse you know (laughs) because we just it was a band that worked for our lives so it was an adult band like we can show up I'll tell you this song's in A, play it for you, work up a harmony, get out there on the stage at like Jazz Fest and play it. And nobody thought we were off the cuff. It was amazing. But all things must pass. Um, the, a couple of members of the band were really into some of the stuff that was happening around the uh, 2020 election. 
that and but mainly they just quit the band at the beginning of 2020 before even COVID and before crazy politics stuff. So I'll just say that the band broke up before that even happened because there are people that loved Willie Sugar Caps that always ask me, what happened to you guys? Did you fire those guys? And I'm like, no, they quit before they even declared their allegiance to weird politics. <laughs> Nicely phrased. And um, weird <laughs> beliefs. Yes. So, um, so that happened to that. But I'm just grateful that I got to do it because I still play with Grayson Caps, who's a great artist, and, and Corky Hughes, who's a great musician. And I still play with Emmy Lou. And then, and I know this is such a tang, not a tangle tale, but it's a long tale. It's a long tale. You haven't given me a chance to get you a song in here, but I'll do that in a second. <laughs> but um, I, I was playing on an album by Mary Gaucher called Rifles and Rosary Beads, which was Grammy nominated. Uh, she did a TED talk about her work with combat veterans and their spouses and their families. Um, and it's a it's a masterpiece of an album. So if 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 you're if the listener you haven't heard Rifles and Rosary Beads by Mary Gaucher, G A U T H I E R, uh, you should hear it because it's up there with with Prine and Mary Chapin Carpenter and just great modern singer songwriter records. Um, I got to play on it, and she would tell us a story about getting together with uh, you know a. a a wounded warrior and his wife or a wounded warrior and her husband and or whatever or her wife or her his husband or whatever you know families of people and groups and writing the song and tell us the story and then play us the song and then we would write out the chord chart and start crafting the song in the studio and um and then in the middle of the the week she said why aren't you doing this work? And I said, well, nobody's asked me to do it. So like the next day, I got a call from uh, Radney Foster and Darden Smith, and uh, and I became a team member of Songwriting with Soldiers. Hmm. Meanwhile, they developed a post-traumatic growth program called PATH, P-A-T-H-H, and I'm not going to mess up what it stands for, but um, it's a post-traumatic growth, which is a fairly new technique for treating post-traumatic stress that involves less group therapy and medication and um, a lot of other things and teaching yourself things you can do to deal with the effects. You can learn to meditate. You can learn to, you know, things like yoga and just taking care of your body and changing your diet and also learning to tell your story so that you can make a connection with other people because the farther you go into PTSD, the less connected you are to anybody else because you're ashamed of your story, no matter how unshameful it is. And so it's just a symptom of it. It doesn't make any sense that somebody who went and did what they were ordered to do in the military would be ashamed of it, although it does in a way. We know the history of war, that it's it's terrible, and it's tough, and it's it's destructive on everything. Mm -hmm. But... At the same time, these are people trying to get better, and um, so it's extremely uh, inspirational. So I do that. I probably travel 60, 70 days a year to do that work all over the country, from Maine to Florida to California to Washington to Montana to Texas, Missouri, Georgia, South Carolina, Northern Virginia, et cetera. Yeah. I'm doing it next week in North Carolina. So... Then it's 2020, and everybody has their own version of that story. So everything shuts down um, on a personal level, on a 
global level. Of course, I was like, what's going on? This is the apocalypse. You know, <laughs> on a personal level, I was like, wow, look, I'm, I'm at my house for an entire season watching it become watching winter turn into spring. This is this is this what people usually do? And of course, spring 2020, where I live, was the most beautiful spring ever. <laughs> it was just idyllic. And at the same time, this this strange new world. But the that's when the post-traumatic growth work with PATH started. And I became, I was chosen for that team because I'm such a road dog. And they knew I could fly somewhere, get a car, drive to a retreat center, take a nap, meet with everybody, write a song the same day, go back the next day, do a follow-up about how we had the conversation and it turned into a song, record the song in my own little portable studio, perform it, and be out of there by 10 a.m. and back home that night. So it's kind of a brutal couple of days. But it's incredible. and so I started doing that, and then Emmy Lou started touring again. I started touring again. Recording sessions started to come back. So my plate was incredibly more full than ever in 2021, 2022, 2023. Um, and I, I love it. I love it. It's very uh, – we've incorporated our lives. We block out dates for, for, uh, for us. My wife and I, our kids are grown out of the house. But um, – so that's my story to now. And, and – the Jimmy Buffett journey started back, like I said, in 2004, and it carried on right up until his passing. Like, every album he made, I played on or worked on, and he made a record of, of songs he recorded in the late 60s, in, accompanied by stories he told about his life at that time. And I'm, I'm like a co-producer on that record. I helped organize all the songs and all the spoken word parts and mas- worked on the mastering and everything and the editing. But every album, so seven or eight albums in that 20 years and 20 or 21 songs that I worked on on those records. So my connection with him was was very deep, and it was almost purely musical. Like, we didn't go play golf or anything. We didn't hang out, but we hung out and created. And so whenever he called, we just popped right back in, started right over where we left off. And so uh, the loss is, is a big one. But it's different from losing your like your bestie, you know. But it's somebody that I worked with, and that kind of work, writing with somebody as as good of a songwriter as he is, um, it's just pure joy. And he was a, a creative and open-minded person. So we were working with with African musicians. We were working with musicians from all over the world from different times, you know. Because of Jimmy, I got to work with Bill Withers. Mm-hmm. I got to okay. work with Mark Knopfler. I got to work with Tumani Diabate. I got to work with Cedric Burnside, Lightning Malcolm, um, Toby Keith. I mean, it's just so wide open. He was like, yeah, bring him in. Let's do that. Let's get those guys from West Africa. Get that Cora player, you know. And a lot of people don't know that because, uh, you know, he's a famous guy who sells out arenas and stadiums, and it's party, party, and there's nothing wrong with that. Making people happy is a noble occupation. <laughs> so... Um, Anyway, that's just part. That's part of my story, and uh, and and I, uh, the next song I'm going to play is one of the songs I wrote with Jimmy Buffett in this last year. Okay, and this is a song that started uh, December 11th, 2022. Got to get my dates right, and. Um, 
Jimmy called me and said, are you ready for some homework? And that's what he would say to me in, in these last five or six years was uh, he'd say, are you ready for some homework? And that meant I'm, I'm going to, I'm putting a record together. Let's write. And I knew it, when we wrote in 2019 for an album called Life on the Flip Side that came out in 2020, um, I knew he had cancer, and I knew he was getting treatments already. So I knew in the back of my mind in 2022 and into 2023 that he was into like three, four years of chemo. But he seemed so on hmm. and so positive, and he looked so good that it, it didn't cross my mind that he that he was dying, although he knew, I suppose, that he was. I'm not trying to put any words in his mouth, but, I mean, he got the diagnosis of Merkel cell carcinoma, which is, you know, take these treatments as long as you can, and then you're gonna then you're gonna die. And that's that diagnosis so far in in, in medicine. So, yeah. um, but he was, you know, fun to work with. He wasn't. He wasn't outwardly worrying about anything. He was just plowing on and with a big smile on his face and having fun, it seemed like. So I just went with it. He called me and said, are you ready for some homework? I said, yes. He sent me three song ideas. He said, I've got to go. He, he, he had to get his treatments in Boston and Houston. <clears throat> so he was, and lucky for him, he has a couple of jets to fly around on. So he was going to Boston, going to Houston. He's doing all his things. He goes to St. Bart in the winter and goes surfing and goes to Santa Monica and other times when it's cooler and stays on the beach. And then when it's warm, he goes back up to the Hamptons and stays in Sag Harbor and whatever else he does. And he was trying to play tour dates. And um, on December 19th, I was sitting with those ideas on my laptop thinking, when am I ever going to get to these songs? It's the Christmas holidays. I've got house guests in from California. I'm trying to be a good host. I'm not trying to be a jerk to my dear wife and my kids who were in for the holidays. My friends, they were the house guests, on the morning of December 19th said, I'm so sorry, we've got to work today. We've got to each work on our laptops. And I said, great. <laughs> I got I a song to write. <laughs> so I had these three song ideas, and I sketched, th I sketched all three out that morning. It took me about four hours. And I sent Jimmy phone recordings. I spread them out. I sent him, you know, one, the lyrics I'd sort of crafted from his ideas. And meanwhile, he's on like a plane from chemo. Um, he sends me back a message and says, uh, one of the songs, I love it. He said, I'm saving the other two like little treats for myself tomorrow because I love this one so much. I'm just going to wait. And so it was one of the sweetest notes I've ever gotten back from a co-writer in sort of a remote type situation. So he, this song, and we wrote five songs for the album. And uh, the album's called Equal Strain on All Parts. And that is what Jimmy's grandfather, how Jimmy's grandfather would describe how a hammock works if you're going to take a nap. That if you're going to get in a hammock and be comfortable, there has to be equal strain on all parts. And his grandfather was also a... A, a boat captain mm. who had grown up when there were still sails on like working boats. So he knew how a, a big boat with sails worked. And that was the same thing with sails. You need to have equal strain on all parts for the, to be able to steer a boat with sails. So anyway, son of a son of a sailor, apparently. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Grandson of a grand of a son of a sailor. So he sent me this idea for a song called bubbles up and that's a diving 
term in this case about when you have in the water in your dive gear and you get turned around for whatever reason and they tell you if you don't know where the surface is anymore watch the bubbles they're going up and so this is a song about telling someone just I can tell you I know you feel lost follow the bubbles there's the light up there there's the air there's the surface you can go back to the world that way. And so um, I was surprised that Jimmy wanted to write a song about that. Um, even though he's written beautiful, poignant songs, you know, uh, that son of a son of a sailor, Pirate Looks at 40, He Went to Paris, The Death of an Unpopular Poet, Ten Cup Chalice, on and on and on, beautiful songs. But in the, in the 20 years I was writing with him, if I tried to write something too sort of somber, he might say, Parrot has don't want to hear that, you know. And so uh, he was very aware of, of his who audience, he was yeah. and his audience. So yeah. this one, I, I just, but I knew after, at this point, 18, 19 years of working together, that he sent me an idea not for me to pretend to be him, but he wanted my take, which was an amazing thing. And yeah. I, it really hit me in the last three or four years that that's what he wanted. So I started to just let it go. I would... I would write the exact song I wanted to write and send in my version of it and say, do with, do with this what you will, whatever you want to do with this. And uh, it started to get to where he would be like, I like it. Let me just work on the lyrics. And that's what happened with this song. So when Jimmy passed away on September 1st, 2023, uh, Paul McCartney started sending out these social media posts. And the, the post that went out on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook from, from, Paul, from Sir Paul said, I became friends with Jimmy in his last days, and he was a great guy, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to miss him. He, we became friends. And I played some songs for him while he was laying in the bed one night recently. Um, in the days before he passed, Paul went over and did a little concert for him at his bedside, which is pretty incredible. Wow. And... Um, and he said, and Jimmy played me some new songs. And he played me this one song called Bubbles Up that's a great song. And it, his vocal on it is, is the best vocal he's ever done. And so, you know, the, I was, you know, lo looking around for at the day Jimmy died, and that popped up, and it blew me away. So, of course, the label rushes the song out. And, um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's made, it's, it's been a beloved song. But uh, anyway... That's the story of the song, and um, the Coral Reefer Band is going to play Jazz Fest this year in New Orleans on the last night, May 5th, right before Trombone Shorty closes on the main stage, and we're going to do a celebration of Jimmy. So it'll be the Coral Reefer Band, plus I'm an honorary Coral Reefer, so I'll be playing guitar and whatever else they need, and um, and we're going to have some guest vocalists from the roster of, if you look at the, they've released the lineup of, of Jazz Fest, it's pretty it's pretty strong, including the Stones and a bunch of great people. So, that, yeah. <laughs> so the Stones are going to play. I'm turning 60 May 1st, and we're going to rehearse May 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Stones <laughs> are playing the 2nd. So it's going to be a good birthday. Yeah, It's going to so. be in New Orleans. And uh, one last thing before I play the song. We were going to go to New Orleans in July with Jimmy and I. We're going to go. And for some reason, he just asked me to go. We were going to play on WWOZ, which is the Jazz Fest flagship station. It has been the whole time. And um, where Jazz Fest started at, at WWOZ. And 
we were going to go and play our songs because one of the songs we wrote is called The University of Bourbon Street and it's about Jimmy moving to New Orleans and learning how to be in a band in 1966 or 7 and being in a cover band on Bourbon Street and sort of cutting his teeth and uh, wonderful song and the, the Preservation Hall band plays on it it's a really cool track and uh, but I was literally out packing putting my suitcase and my guitar in my trunk and the phone rang and said Jimmy just can't go and that was uh, when he took a turn. So it was July, and then he passed on September first. I think he, I think he wanted, he wanted to go play on the radio, and he wanted to play these new songs. So I think he really just wanted to go to New Orleans one more time. <laughs> and the fact that he invited me was—I'll never know why, because I didn't get to talk to him again. But we had a great twenty-year run of writing songs and making records together. In addition to, I was doing all my other stuff. I was in Emmy Lou's band. Uh, I was writing for Shamika Copeland and producing her albums, and she's getting Grammy nominations. We're getting all the awards from like Mojo Magazine for Blues Record of the Year, Blues Producer of the Year. Who knew? So, um, uh, great stuff is is happening. It's it's a it's I'm I'm a lucky person, and 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 all my saying yes to things that I might now wonder why I said yes to. If the phone rang and asked me, can you in, can you engineer us at this? house with this cabin and i'm like i don't know how to engineer but i would say yeah i can do it because i was trying to make a living for my family yeah but i learned to be a producer i learned to be a you know an engineer not that i'm a professional engineer but i could do it if i had to right run a pro tool session or whatever bubbles up song i wrote with jimmy almost exactly a year ago so we started the the process around december 11th I really got going December 19th. We recorded the whole album the last week of January, so things moved really fast. The whole record got written in those months, you know. And uh, and even in the studio, he was receiving chemo, but also just on 100% and, and creative. And we rewrote lyrics uh, in the studio, like, heavily, like, the entire lyrics of one of the songs, like, right there in the middle of the studio with everybody sitting around. So, there'll never be another guy like that. Um, Open-minded artist, popular performer. It's kind of like knowing Will Rogers or something, you know. When this world starts reeling from that pressure drop feeling, just treading water these days, there's a way to feel better be well set to weather the storms till the sun shines again when your compass is spinning and you're lost on the way like a leaf in the wind friend hear me when i say bubbles up they will point you towards home no matter how deep how far you roam they will show you the surface, the plot and the purpose. So when the journey gets long, just know that you were loved. There is light up above and joy. There is always enough. Bubbles up. My friends who were jolly 
When melancholy knocks, sometimes they let her in. They sit and share stories of flops and of glories, and it ain't half as bad as the bends. Sometimes living is a struggle, multiplied double, but they love it too much for the party to end. Bubbles up, they will point you towards home, no matter how deep, how far you roam. They will show you the surface, the plot and the purpose. So when the journey gets long, just know that you were loved. There is light up above, joy is always enough. Bubbles up, so let's pop cork to the rough and the right to the bright blazing days to the sweet starry nights well bubbles up they will point us towards home no matter how deep how far you roam They will show you the surface The plot and the purpose So when the journey gets long Just know that you are loved There is light up above And the joy is always enough Bubbles up Bubbles up Beautiful. Yeah. Well, Kimbrough today on the Acoustic Alternatives program in Grove Studios in Ypsilanti. Again, a place that I mentioned at the beginning of the show is a, a good spot for a podcaster. If you're looking to uh, record a podcast somewhere, start yeah. one up. They got four microphones and the only equipment you need, an opportunity to record it onto a little mini flash drive or bands or DJs. There's places for you to practice here as well. Just look them up, Grove Studios, Ypsilanti. And a big thanks to them for encouraging me to even follow this path. Losing my radio gig and having the ability to do this in a radio station setting, when I lost that, I didn't realize how much I missed it until I started yeah. doing it again. I'm like, oh, I love doing this. Yeah. This is an important part of my life. So thank you for that. You gave me like the whole story. <laughs> I had questions. I'm going to have to go back and get those questions in between because there yeah. are things you covered that I might want to revisit as part of your story. So uh, let's see. No offense to everyone you've mentioned, all the great people that you've played with, uh, the Amy Lou's, the Jimmy Buffett's. But if I had to pick one song from everybody that you mentioned and yourself that I would play and hit repeat on, and I've done it recently... I would go to this album and go mm. Like Laughing, because that Like Laughing oh, song yeah. also appeared on this album. Right. But that song makes me want to hit repeat. I right. love that song. Yeah. I don't, do you ever do that one as a solo artist? I do sometimes. Um, it's f Somebody's playing the bongo drums. I bumped something, apparently. That's weird. <laughs> it stopped now. I like it. Um, 
I do sometimes. I was talking to, um, there's a podcaster and and writer and screenwriter and producer named Brian Koppelman, who who's responsible for the show Billions. Okay. And his father was Charles Koppelman, who was a record executive, who was actually, I mean, a long time, just classic New York record man from back in the day. His, you know, he was from, his parents were working class Jews from the Bronx, and he became the biggest guy in the music biz, one of mm-hmm. them, one of them. And uh, that's who signed Will and the Bushman. And so that's the song when I, I reached out to Brian because I was working with Michael McDermott, who's a singer-songwriter from him. Chicago. And um, and Brian and Michael had worked together on some songs. And I reached out to Brian and said, I like your podcast. And um, and I've been working with McDermott. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. He goes, oh, I still play that song, uh, Like Laughing. Because I play it on my guitar all the time. You know? Really? That's so cool. when he heard it, he was a college kid, wherever he was going to college in Boston. Because Brian Koppelman is the guy who brought... Tracy Chapman to Electra, like his dad, and then she ended up with an Electra, and all his, his dad was the, you know, EMI Capital SBK, you know. But it's it's an interesting time. Will and the Bushman. We we're also label mates with Daryl Scott, which is interesting because then he became the Uber session player and yeah. songwriter, you know, and he is certainly well, I call him the Hillbilly Jeff Beck mm-hmm. because when you see. You know, you think of him as more of a bluegrassy kind of guy because yeah. he's from Harlan County, Kentucky, and all that stuff. But when he plays electric guitar, he's the hillbilly Jeff Beck. <laughs> so go see Daryl Scott. Um, I can play like laughing. I, I would yeah. love that. So this is a song. I guess you could call it proto Americana. Yeah. But <clears throat> there's that bongo player again. I think it's your, it's your cup. Oh yeah. Okay, the, moving, moving the cup. It also could be my windscreen hitting the microphone. Well, you can't move that. But, nope. Uh, um, well, you can move it away from the microphone. I did that. But <laughs> Good suggestion, though. None of this is Grove's fault. No, this is a user error. <laughs> One thing about the whole quote-unquote Americana thing is that it's not forgotten, but maybe it isn't mentioned as often as it should be, that part of punk rock and new wave was country punk which was a short-lived thing but nevertheless there it was beat farmers they were they country punk yeah no, jason and scorchers yeah, yeah, beat yeah. farmers and then you had people that skirted on it like the gun club who who were like definitely punk band but they had they covered robert johnson and they they had you know they were interested in the dark side of hank williams and all that stuff you know and then, of course, like like all people my age, you really get turned on to country through the Rolling Stones. And all of a sudden, then your parents' Hank Williams record, which my parents had those. They grew up with Hank Williams. That was their, that was their touchstone. That was their hero, pre-rock and roll people. They didn't like Elvis. They liked Hank. And um, so that music was always there for me. And then bands like R.E.M., and especially in their early days, they would do... One of they all, you know, if you were a big fan, you'd buy their singles, and the B sides were all these cool. So one of them, one of their B sides was uh, was King of the Road, mm-hmm. like a, kind of a, a piss take in the studio of King of the Road, where Michael Stipe didn't even really know the words, but it yeah. became a, you know, and then Elvis Costello did uh, Almost Blue, mm-hmm. which was a country record, 
George Jones, right? Yeah, and he he did uh, did the record with Billy Sherrill in Nashville, and um, and then of course, I bought my copy of there was a Warner Brothers double album twofer album of GP and Grievous Angel Graham Parsons, and that's when I really discovered Amy Lou. My sister had her solo had her early records, Pieces of the Sky, etc. And I liked them okay, but I liked those Graham Parsons records a lot. And so, you know, when I get to play with, with Emmy Lou, when we play, you know, Wheels, you know. We've all got wheels to take ourselves away, you know. Uh, I get to sing the Graham part, or the Rodney part, whatever it is. So that that's part of my, when I wrote this song, I had already heard those records and I, I already I already had heard Hank I'd heard Graham I'd heard Elvis doing talking about Graham so and there is something to that and I'd also heard R.E.M. talk about country and play King of the Road etc and um, and play some of their earlier you know they did just the cool jangly acoustic guitar stuff yeah uh Straight to Hell by Driving and Crying, classic song. So this is Will and the Bushman, sort of that thing. So this is like laughing. Of course, I, my girlfriend broke my heart, broke up with me, and I wrote this song in the time it took to sit and sing it with my friend Rob Trucks, who was a pivotal person in the Tuscaloosa, Alabama music scene. He's the guy that booked, you know, Sonic Youth at the club in Tuscaloosa and booked 10,000 Maniacs before they were playing big places and the Soul Asylum and the Replacements and Alex Chilton when he came back out in the mid 80s and so and Rob was the guy who always had the cool records and turn he turned and he I got to tell this part of the story when I was just out of high school January 1983 I graduated in high school June 82 uh and then I immediately saw The Clash with Lee Dorsey and the Meters at the warehouse in New Orleans. So that changed my life. I saw my heroes, The Clash, but I also saw Lee Dorsey and the Meters, and that changed my life big time. Both of those things did. Then in January of 83, my, my little new wave band called Ground Zero opened for R.E.M. Hmm. at the Sanger Theater in Mobile. R.E.M. just had one, they had the single out of Radio Free Europe, and the EP out called Chronic Town. They were literally leaving from that show to go home and then go record Murmur. So it was about to be on for them and and never look back. But they had a crummy dented van. Peter Buck's amp was blown up. He had to borrow my amp. So for me, it was that, uh, you know, if you read those rock and roll books about uh, when the Ramones played England in 75 or early 76 and everybody was there the guys that formed the clash the guys that formed the sex pistols the guys that formed the buzzcocks they were all there and they saw the ramones and thought we could do that now you come to find out it's not easy to be in the ramones they were great if you saw them play they were great it wasn't just screwing around it was a great band the records are great the performances were great and also so were the sex pistols and so were the clash but um, I hung out with those REM guys. They weren't necessarily all that friendly or unfriendly. They were just there. They were tired. They, but they, they looked like me and my, my friends. 
They wore the same clothes from Goodwill. They had a crummy van. Buck's amp was blown up. He had to come to me and go, can I borrow your amp? And so it was that same thing of like, oh, it's not that I can do that. It's that they're just like me. Yeah. They're no different. They're only a few years older. So so that really gave me, I, I always say, R.E.M. gave me permission to not only do my own music, but be from the South and not be apologetic about it, not try to pretend I'm English and be like a new wave band with a fake English accent, which up to that point I had been. And I think that night I probably sang my songs with some kind of fake English accent and a skinny tie, you know, a real self-consciously new wave thing, even though it was already 83. Um, but it made me realize that you can just be yourself and be be from where you're from and not worry about it because there's also a massive leg up just to be aware of where you're from. I mean, look at great writers. William Faulkner, write what you know. He just lived in Oxford, Mississippi. Where the hell is that? But yet there's a whole world going on. Or as Tom Waits would say, there's a world going on underground. <laughs> there's also a world going on above ground. So I wrote this with a broken heart. So let me see if I can hit the high notes. Like laughing. This is for you. This is uh, for your for old Bushman fans. And uh, Brian Koppelman, hello. <laughs> Seeing things real After all I lied Ran away from what you think is wrong What you think you gained And what you expect Is always supposed to disappoint Even a strong will has a point When hard stairs turn to water these things I know They come and go like laughing These things I know They come and go The things you saw Brought to me Things you saw in a magazine And you can't even think about Things you thought you would Someone new Discovered you And you think that cash Is a golden rule Well gold is a Rule for you Yes I know These things I know They come and go Like laughing These things I know they come and go I know 
things I know They come and go Will Kimbrough on Acoustic yeah. Alternatives. Thank you for that. That was a joy yeah. for me to hear. Yeah, and I guess I wrote that when I was about... 22 so that's uh it's an old one 30, 38 38 years ago yeah, almost 38 years ago uh, but it, that's a good one it's get inspired by whatever you get inspired by one thing i've learned um in, in the years hence is that you can also get inspired by just listening to somebody else talk so that's part of that songwriting with soldiers work that i do i'll be doing it next week and i'll be listening to um other people and it's a nice thing after a lifetime of being a singer-songwriter and like paying attention to your own thoughts and your desires of what you want to say or hearing a cool phrase that you want to turn into a song. Or, mm-hmm. um, And I, I will say this on that Bubbles Up song. I used my what I've learned how to listen uh, through songwriting with soldiers with Jimmy Buffett. I just listened to him, and I let him say what the song needed to say. And then I let myself be myself completely. I know that sounds like well, what else would you do? Hmm. But I wasn't trying to do anything else but just give him an unfiltered 100%. This is my idea. And you can change it or re- reject it or whatever. And and that was definitely one where he was ready to say, yeah, this is great. Let me just work on the lyrics. So I'm, 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 I'm glad I have that song. I'm glad I have both of those songs because, I mean, like laughing is definitely one that, that you, you, you hit a lick. I remember playing some college town in the South, and we had not played that song that night. And this young woman came up to me afterwards, just literally like in tears, you know, can you please play that song for me? And I stood out in the parking lot and played it for her. And it was like one of the first times that you, that I experienced um, a song I had written being important to someone. It's like important to me. Emotionally, you know. So yeah. um, I don't know why it connects with me emotionally, but it does. Just something in the way you sing it and the way it's written and the melody is just... It struck a chord. It hit me singing at this time that that's something about the way you say these things I know they come and go. There's something about the way those words come out of your mouth. And that is part of writing. It's not just what you say. It's how it sounds coming out of your mouth or how it feels. So sometimes you have to, you know, John Prime is a master of that. Like, I've read reviews that were kind of, you know, I guess sometimes a reviewer's got to be critical of something. So it'd be like John Prine, the greatest lazy songwriter of all time, because sometimes he would leave in what would seem like a non sequitur, like hot dog bun, my sister's a nun, but at the end of, uh, you know, whatever that song was, fish and whistle or something. But to me, those are, that's who he was. The tossing off the funny line in the midst of after, after, you know, you've heard Sam Stone or, Hello in there, something yeah. that just shatters you. Yeah. Um, then he's like, I'm going to give you a break. We're just people, you know. Let's laugh a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Be goofy. First, you know, I, I, the first job I had, you know, I said, thank you and please. They made me scrub a parking lot down on my knees, and I got fired for being scared of bees. They only give me 50 cents an hour. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's John Prine. Right. And we miss him. You know, that's yeah. a guy who, you know. That's a guy who made who made people happy and also shattered shattered you. But the same was with Jimmy Buffett. I had a a, a, a close friend who knows a lot about music. When Jimmy died, said, oh, "I'm sorry about your friend, but you know he you know he made a living singing about cheeseburgers." And I and I said, "Well, 
Yeah, that's one of his songs. But, you know, if you ever heard He Went to Paris or if you ever heard The Death of an Unpopular Poet, I mean, these are... Or even just A Pirate Looks at 40, it's a perfect song that tells a story in a perfect way. Or I listen to Son of a Son of a Sailor. It's Everything about it is great. The little bass line. And when that drummer hits the cymbal, like the bells, like ringing in the wind of a, of a, at a shipyard or at a harbor, it evokes something utterly cinematic and uh, and just somewhere south of disorder you know he's using these terms that are really just you know south of disorder is just a nautical term about some wind pattern on the earth in the ocean but south of disorder is just incredible well, for the sake of time, because yeah. we're kind of already running out yeah. of studio time, I have a few more questions, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll wrap it up. I know I'm um, verbose. Oh no, no, you're giving me great stories, and I'm, I'm loving, I'm loving having a chat with you. It's been, it's been really nice. Uh, I'm sure you don't ever get asked about this song, but we are in the Detroit area. Mm-hmm. Three girls from Detroit. Oh, yeah. What the heck is that about? So there was a band from Detroit called the Vertical Pillows. Mm-hmm. I don't even. Yeah. So they were like, you know, a little. Uh, it was uh, three young women, Mary. Paula and Monique, I think were their names, because the lyrics say, here comes Mary Paula and Monique and some alcoholic Thunders freak. So we bonded on our love of the New York Dolls and Johnny Thunders. I had just met Johnny Thunders at that time, so I got to tell them the story that I met Johnny Thunders in New York. And um, and they opened for us in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, <laughs> at the at the bar that where all the bands play, where you know, Alex Chilton and 10,000 Maniacs played. And um, but we were like the local. We were the one of the popular bands that, that came through, and um, so we had a big night with them. Cool. And I'm pretty sure that our bass player, you know, ran off with their bass player, and <laughs> they stayed up all night, and you know, did things, did things that young people do. And um, so that song really comes from that, uh, and it's a, you know, it's it's our our big hard rock song. So it's kind of a tongue in cheek, you know. We're trying to write sort of a big like Detroit rock, yeah. you know. You know uh, but it's it's not you know it's not like listening to the Stooges or something. It's no. it's definitely fun. But uh, three girls from Detroit, you know, they're rocking tonight. Three girls from Detroit. Well, everything feels all right. I could. Anyway. I got the lyrics right yeah. here, but that's okay. No. <laughs> I could hang around for about an hour or two with some Midwestern industrial girl like you. You came down south, guitar in your hand. You showed me the meaning of a rock and roll band. Three girls from Detroit. They're rocking tonight. Uh, here comes Mary, Paula, and Monique and some alcoholic thunders freak. Anyway. You remember. When was the last time you actually played that? It's been years. Right. But it's the just fact that you my, can remember that, it's amazing. In the muscle memory. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, so that's just a story. It's a story song. Yeah. And it's just a a, one out of the blue yeah. with a good riff. I remember we recorded that in Bearsville, New York, and we had there was a Marshall amp, like the iconic, you know, amp on top of the cabinet, and it had Bowie spray painted on the <laughs> side. So it was it was a touring amp of Bowie. So I was like, I got to use this. Yeah. Mick Ronson must have played through this. Maybe. It's, Maybe it's the stencil on the side. I mean, it was at Bearsville, so I mean, I have a feeling it was legit. Yeah, yeah. and so, uh, so yeah, I played my big loud rock song, rock song through the David Bowie, Mick Ronson, Marshall. So that's appropriate that's, for the glam aspect of it. I mean, we do, and and I'll say this too. While uh, I, you you may have another question, but I, I'll never forget we were playing for 
the distributor, which was Capital EMI Angel yep. at the time. I was a buyer in a record store. I actually know that. So you know Angel, <laughs> yeah, EMI Angel. So, so we played the the EMI distribution party at the Ritz Carlton in Atlanta. Nice. And um, we played for about eight a.m. for all the buy all the Angel buyers, and they all they all sort of had asymmetrical haircuts and like shoulder pad suits on. It was the eight late eighties. Yeah. And I remember they had screens up there too, so we were on a stage playing, and then they had screens of us. And I looked up and I thought, there's no way that this band is going to work on MTV. And I was right. Things you don't want to be right about. But I knew I was like 24 going, oh, okay. But making that record in Bearsville, which is basically Woodstock, you know, we met, we met Rick Danko. Um, we stayed in Richard Manuel's cabin. We stayed in Levon's barn. We, um, we met Marshall Crenshaw. We met John Sebastian. Uh, we met. We played ping pong with Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. John Anderson from Yes came and bummed a cigarette. Fun. And um, just stuff like that. That when you're, you know, and everybody that knew Don Rubin and Charles Koppelman, they had been the managers of the Love and Spoonful, and also the president, the people that ran Kama Sutra Records. Their record label for Love. So and the Spoonful. classic. Yeah. Double, you know, your, man- your managers are your publisher and your label. Yeah. So they got all the money. With all due respect to those guys and their estates and families. Yes. So when I met John Sebastian, he said, oh, I hear you're working with Charles and Don. I said, yeah. And he goes, well, keep your wallet firmly stapled to your butt. And he walked out. <laughs> and then we met Marshall Crenshaw, and our record was produced by Richard Goderer, who was known for producing Blondie and producing the Go-Go's and Marshall Crenshaw. And he came and said, oh, you're working with, with Richard. And I was like, yeah. He goes, well, good luck with that. You know. <laughs> and then uh, so it was definitely like, a, what what's going on? And is there a Greek chorus telling us? Yeah, you know, don't do it. But there, nobody did anything wrong in that case. It was yeah. like. I remember asking my lawyer, did we sign a, a bad record deal after we had signed it? You know, we're all having a drink afterwards. And he, I said, uh, did we sign a bad record deal? He goes, no, no, if, if, if there's money made, you'll get some of it. He goes, you just, you're, just, you're in bed with the devil. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right. So uh, we first met today physically, but mm-hmm. we met online mm-hmm. when you were buying a record from me on eBay, which is the weirdest thing that's right. ever happened to me, selling a record yeah. to somebody else. Yeah. So that was about writing your book condense the, the book story because we're kind of running out of time. So there's a book coming or is there not a book coming? Well, it's just I started it in 2020 when I had time and I worked daily and then 2021 came around and also mid-2020 I started back with my travel for Songwriting with Soldiers so I was rudely interrupted from my writing practice um, because then it was like, well, I need to make a record I need to make a Shamika record Need to make another Shamika record. Need to ride with Jimmy. Need to go on tour with Emmy Lou. So I need to get back into my practice of. There's things beeping. Yeah, I don't know what's beeping if it's the camera saying I'm dead, but. But we're still recording, so we'll have audio. Uh, so so it's a long time work in progress, and also since you've you've heard sort of the verbal condensed condensed version here, it's it's a long story with every every time <laughs> every time I write one story, it leads to three others. And that's part of that process. So I'm going to... Um, you keep talking. I'm going to... I mean, this is actually a conversation that inspires me to, to get back on it. And my wife's actually work writing, uh, writing down sort of a, a memoir in w- that she hopes to turn into a novel and change all the names because my wife has a great story. She, she, uh, her parents were 
from New York City who went to San Francisco in 68 and lived literally on the corner of Haight-Ashbury, Haight and Ashbury, and so she was two years old. And then they were some of the people that, that in San Francisco founded the movement to form the commune The Farm, which is still a land co-op in, in Tennessee, Summertown, Tennessee, near Nashville. So they drove around. They outfitted 50 school buses with, like, wood stoves and bunks, hmm. drove around the country until they found a place that they wanted to try to buy, and the locals said, okay, we'll sell to you hippies. Think about it. 1971, They all the men all look like Charles Manson. And not let's not forget that that was the biggest story of that time. Yeah in our country so 50 school buses full of guys that look like charles manson pull up and women that look like the manson girls i'm sorry mother-in-law but that's what they looked like to people so it's incredible to me there's a great podcast called you must remember manson that fleshes out the whole connection with hollywood and the music business um that was hinted at in vincent bugliosi's book helter skelter and it just reminded me that my, my wife was a little tiny kid on this caravan of 50 school buses pulling up into your town. And after a while, the word got out, and the people would call ahead, say, Grants Pass, Oregon, and say, these hippies are coming. And so the sheriffs would be at waiting at the town county line for them and search the buses. And I wish that was the worst problem we had today, that hippies were coming. Right, exactly. So, uh, and, But then they went to Summertown, Tennessee, and the locals were like, yeah, you can buy this land, and you can start your commune here. Isn't that crazy? It was weird. And that changed Middle Tennessee forever, because all of a sudden they had what became a commune of 1,500 people. And then when, when couples would split up and you know the guy would need to move out and go get a job, he'd go to Nashville. So Nashville... Right around the same time of the of like Towns Van Zant and Rodney and Guy Clark and young Steve Earle are moving there, young John Hyatt, then the hippies from the farm were there too, so it was a perfect vortex for what was to come. But it, of course, it, it you know it still turned into what country music is now, which <laughs> is you know less country. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so new album coming as well. You said new album called For the Life of Me. It's coming in May. It's actually being released while I'll be at Jazz Fest, so that's exciting for me. And um, uh, it's, I'm excited about it. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful record. And um, uh, but as a as a as a singer songwriter, of course, the first thing I think of when I finish a record is like, now I can make another one. So yeah. we just tracked uh, 12 songs for Shamika Copeland that I'm producing, and I uh, helped write seven of those songs. Cool. So that's happening. Buffett's record is out there, Equal Strain on All Parts. Go give it a listen. There's some wonderful songs. We got to uh, collaborate with the uh, Preservation Hall Jazz Band. We got to um, collaborate with, I co-wrote, and I sing on the same song as the, the um, incredible African artist, Angelique Kijo. Oh, yeah. So I'm, my homely voice is on there, and then she starts singing, <laughs> and we co-wrote the song with Jimmy and Mac McAnally, and actually another African artist who is no longer alive, but we Jimmy had ad- inadvertently borrowed from this guy's song and and un- and realized he's like, "Oh, I took his song, so he just made the guy a co-writer and his estate agreed, you know, that was fine." So it was interesting. And um so that uh, I got a through Shamika, we're collaborating with uh, with all kinds of artists like we've done on the last few records. Um, we've collaborated with everybody from uh Jason Isbell to the the uh, Creole artist Cedric Watson and the North Mississippi 
artist Cedric Burnside and uh, the High Records Al Green organist yeah. uh, Reverend Charles, and um, cool. so Charles Hodges. So that opportunity is always great. Like I said, I'll be I'll be with uh, the post traumatic growth group either combat veterans or a combination of combat veterans and first responders next week in North Carolina I'll be doing that more than 20 times in this this year so it's a busy life and I know I'm supposed to be talking about my album and all those yeah. things but to me all those things rolled into one just make it um, uh, make it what the life that I love which is to, to, to be busy but to be fully employed which is different from just being working all the time it's like your senses are employed. Mm-hmm. Your senses are working overtime. XTC. I like that. Yeah. And um <laughs> I'm um, sitting with a jukebox, I yeah, think. Jangling jukebox. <laughs> Will the album be released on a label or are you independent? The album's released on my own label. Okay. I've released several records on the the Daphne label, which mm-hmm. is named after one of my dogs that <laughs> passed away. Um, and it's distributed by Soundly, okay. which is my friend Stephanie. Hudachek's uh, distribution company that goes through um, the orchard. So it just goes through the same old distribution chain that, that used to be Sony Red. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's it's great to work with those folks. And you know who owns the orchard? Who started no, it? I don't. Richard Goderer. Oh, wow. So Richard Goderer still got my master's. Give, I'm just kidding. Give back. No. But it's great. I love Richard Goderer. He was, it, you know, working with him was fantastic. We, were, we made that Bushman album together. Richard co-wrote "I Want Candy." No, oh. Richard co-wrote "The Nighttime Is the Right Time." You know, the, oh sorry, hit the mic. Um, you know, so "I Want Candy," the Bow Wow Wow song. He he was in wow. the Strange Loves that did the original version. I want candy, yeah. and then uh, he, he wrote, "Well, the nighttime is the right time." I know that by Jake Giles myself. Yeah. I wanna be with you in the nighttime. So their shtick was the Beatles were the biggest thing. So they pretended to be Australian. <laughs> so they had these fake British accents and said they were from Australia. And um, they had some great stories about touring and being down south and being, you know, these these guys from the Bronx with, whose parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe, you know, Jews from the Bronx, and they're in, like, Birmingham, and the, the promoter's thinking they're from Australia so it's just freely talking about what he thinks about black people and Jewish people and they're just like all right mate you know <laughs> incredible stories so um, I gotta I gotta get I gotta finish my book I mean it's 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 a I think the only way for me to do it is to keep the theme of why keep doing it if you're not a big household name famous you know rock star and you also haven't written any songs that are like bona fide number one hits why keep doing it and so part of what i've been talking about today is the why because the phone keeps ringing and it's somebody like emmy lou or it's somebody like shamika or somebody like todd snyder or somebody like jimmy buffett it's somebody like rodney crowell and and it's somebody like mary gaucher and darden smith asking me to be listen to people's epic stories of recovery from trauma or through trauma and I get to write down what they say and try yeah. to turn it into a song right then and there. And I'm able to do it every time because, you know what? I said I would, and I have to. And I love that. love that. It's so good for a writer to be like, you know, it's not like, oh, we, we tried to write a song. We didn't get one today. But we had lunch. You know, it's more like I listened. I wrote down what they said. I did not think about what I thought about it. 
I wrote it down and I tried to figure out how it works together as a song. And then when you sing it back to somebody, this is a fascinating thing. More often than not, they don't recognize the words being sung, even if it's literally what they said. They say, how'd you come up with that? And I'll say, that's exactly what you said. And you read it out to them or show it on a piece of paper and they go, oh, right, right. But when you sing it, it's transformed. And that's the power for the the healing part of it is, is that all of a sudden your story that three days ago you wouldn't tell anybody and wouldn't look anybody in the eye, somebody's singing it back to you without any judgment. And it's transformative. And I'm not taking credit for these guys' recovery because it's the team of people that are all have been through the same program. So there's nobody there that, besides me, that hasn't experienced the same kind of trauma. All the teachers, your meditation teacher, your yoga teacher, everybody's part of the program. So if somebody doesn't want to talk, they go, well, let me tell you my story from Kandahar 2005. And they'll be like, oh, you were there. It's like, yeah. And, um, and so there's a relatability and there's a power in it. So I'm the luckiest guy in the world to get to do all those things. However, under the radar, some of it is because... Uh, playing guitar for somebody. There is a penalty you pay for being a quote-unquote sideman in the music business. Not so much anymore because there isn't really much of a music. When you're 60 years old, it's like you're not going to get a record deal. So I'm not going to get a record deal. Neither are you. But, no, um, no, I'm not talented. But um, Well, you don't have to be talented. But uh, <laughs> but if you were 17 and you could dance on TikTok, you could might be able to get yeah, signed to it. true. You know, there's actually still an Electra Records, uh, and a Chrysalis Records. There still exist. Yeah. Isn't that a trip? I know. I know a, a kid from Mississippi who got signed because he was making records in his bedroom, and that he was get, he got one song got like eight million or eighty million spins on Spotify, and he got signed to like Chrysalis. I was like, wow, Chrysalis still exists. Um, I, th- I mean, that's insider talk. Sorry, yeah, yeah. podcast listener, we're talking about music le- record labels, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the book is a, is about why you keep doing this a friend of mine who's written a couple of books said you can't just write a book about your tell your stories unless you're just going to self-publish which i probably will but but i think it's the it's the why keep doing it why make it a lifetime pursuit if you're not a big big success and of course living in nashville it's easy to answer that because you know people you have your neighbor my neighbor was david olney who was completely unknown but but yet when Towns Van Zant was asked, who's your favorite living songwriter? He always said, David Olney. And yet, that didn't mean that anybody in Nashville wanted to hear his songs. It just meant that uh, yeah. he could go play in Europe and the 40 people at the club in Berlin would be like, he is Towns Van Zant's favorite writer. You know? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so it's, uh, um, but that didn't matter today because he his pursuit was to write a great song as often as possible, but not, stop writing that song until he thought it was finished whereas i'm obviously if you listen to me talk i'm a little more uh add like i'm ready to move on to the next thing at the drop of a hat and i'm definitely more of an improviser and drawing from my little encyclopedia of music that's inside my little head and that's why i get to do session work and production work because i can understand the references of an artist if they're talking about the blues or pop or jangle pop or country rock or punk rock or world music so anyway that's my my superpower it's it may not be worth a million bucks but it keeps me working yeah and that's what that's what my my passion is continuous creative work 
and I've and my my dream has come true in a different way that I, I imagined it would when I was in my twenties, where I thought I'd be in a band and we'd be playing for a thousand people and they'd know our song. And it and it it came about in a different way. A different dream. I got to write a song with a thousand people instead mm -hmm. of having a thousand people sing me back my song. That's right. <laughs> All right. So for the sake of time, because we are kind of out of it, one mm -hmm. more song and then we'll just uh Okay. Wrap it up. All thank right. you so much for the conversation. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So uh, you'll see. I'll do. What can I do? Okay. I'll do a song that links the Will and the Bushman through um, my solo work. So I'll see if I can hit these notes today. So <clears throat> this is called Closer to the Ground. It's on my first solo record. It's the first song on there, and uh, this is a, a, a sort of a, a note to an old friend. Um, by the way, it's not Todd Snyder, but um, so. In the time it took for you to make my mind up, lives and gray hair sprung up all around. Take a closer look We could share the good things If you just fly a little closer to the ground You've been flying high Living large, believing All the hype they feed you, didn't you know? Maybe you could try a little self-respecting Then maybe you won't fall down at the show When you're closer to the ground There's somewhere to plant your feet And you don't get dizzy when you're coming down When you're firm abound and you're not so high and proud maybe then we could talk it over my old friend
talk it over Come on There you go, Pete Townsend. <laughs> Will Kimbrough is my guest today on Acoustic Alternatives. You can find that song on this record, which is called This. Mm-hmm. Look for it uh, on your website. Is this still available to purchase? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. willkimbrough.com. I'll put that information uh, in the description of the podcast, whether you're watching the video or whether you're listening to the audio on your favorite platform. I'll also put information about my Patreon page, which is the only way I get paid to do any of the things yeah. I do under the Acoustic Alternatives umbrella, which includes the playlist, which includes uh, the podcast, which includes the radio shows I'm doing at Radio Corporate Detroit as well as uh, Sonic Coast, all doing those things for free just because I want to tell people about good music. And I'm so honored to be able to sit across from people like Will yeah. and do this here at Grove Studios. Back at you. Thank you. And this has been a great home for me for the podcast. So if you're looking for a place to do band practice, podcasting, DJ mixing, you can actually even listen to the Masters of Your Records super loud in another room that's over there. Uh, lots of really cool rooms over here in this uh, space in Ypsilanti. Grove Studios is what you're looking for. And Will, what a pleasure. Yeah, man. Thank, Thank you, you so much for, for the, tame, the time and the songs. And uh, uh, the next podcast is not lined up yet. I've been talking to a couple of other people, but uh, this is the first of 2024. So I'm glad it happened. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.